0: Hi, it's Thursday morning, Thanksgiving, actually, if you're into that, and um, I want to do the Haftorah today. Um, Happy to say that we got sponsors for that. Um, This podcast today on the Haftorah is being sponsored by the Koretskis, Marty and Margie, uh, (laughs) good friends, in honor of their parents, okay? Uh, In other words, in memory of their parents, Uh, Koretskis were on my trip. No, we're good friends. These are two intelligent people, and also the also being sponsored partly by uh, my very good friend Brad Kaufman, in honor of his parents, his wonderful parents, uh, you know the the Kaufmans and uh, Bruce Kaufman, Lois Kaufman, and uh, everybody. Uh, to paraphrase Brad, everybody should be healthy and well and make it through the corona, um, because it is a challenge. To keep all these rules and uh, stay safe. And Mirza they should continue to stay safe, and the whole family, the coffins, and everybody else. So, as always, we're very grateful for the sponsors. And with that, I'll plunge into my remarks. You got today the Haftar by safe, which it. let me say this my father was a Tanakh guy. That's what he was. Uh, in other words, Besides learning, he also was always in the Tanakh. This just uh, was, and therefore I got it a little bit by uh, Moses a little bit. And uh, today's after is Hosea from the Elser, And uh, for a lot of people, it's kind of boring stuff, unless you know the historical context. I think that's true. I first read this stuff when I was a kid. You're going to laugh at this. They used to have, long ago, uh, sansino They used to have many volumes of the different books of the Old Testament. Which were a uh, very modern kind of uh, commentaries. He had the translation at the top. And at the bottom, this is when Sansino in England was trying to be as modernish as possible. And consequently, what they did was they had a sort of a commentary in English at the bottom 50% uh, uh, Jewish, 50% Gaim. You know, uh, about one third from perhaps like the Kimchi or something like that. And others not. So I heard about Driver before anybody else did, for example. Now, uh, but the advantage is that I picked up who Hosea, Yo Amos, and all these other people were. Um, and it's an important part for everybody to know, but just most people don't know this. Tell so me, talking to about the after, which is from the end of Hosea, if I want to dumb it down and make it simple to you, it includes Shabbat Shubah, you know, Shubhi Israel, Hashem But that is not the whole part of it. That's all simply the last part of the prophecy of Hosea. And really, if you know the history at this time, it kind of goes by you. So, let me put it this way. We have uh, two sets of narratives in the Nevi'im. In other words, part of the Tanakh is called Torah Nevi'im Suvim. The middle parts called Nevi'im. And Nevi'im broken into two parts. Nevi'im Meshon and Nevi'im Achronim. But it's just a convention. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. So what we refer to as Nevi'im Meshon is nothing but Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Yeshua, Shotem, Shomalachem. And those are four straightforward narratives. Yeshua takes through the end of Yahushua time. The Shoftim takes you another couple hundred years. Shmuel Alf and Shmuel Beis is nothing other than the reign of King Saul and then the reign of King David. And then Malachim carries the story forward from Shlom Mel to the Churim Beis HaMegdush. That's the simple of it. And particularly when you get to the Book of Malachim, in particular, is kind of superficial, meaning that it's written from a certain perspective in which you're trying to just give the... Uh, very broad, uh, almost superficial narrative of what happened over many hundreds of years to Claudius Thrall. They broke into two kingdoms, there's a kingdom of the north and a kingdom of the south, and all that sort of thing. Now the reason I say it's kind of superficial, what I mean is, you're covering a lot of ground, that's a couple hundred years. You cannot cover in a few chapters, a relatively few chapters, so much time, unless you're prepared to be very general generali- into generalizations. There was this king, there was that king. I mean, you're talking about something that could have been a thousand pages. But the author, in one case, Yirmiyahu, we're told, uh, the same material is covered from a somewhat different perspective in the book of diver Yemen, book of Chronicles, by Ezra, the Gormar says, these people, they were just trying to give a broad view of how do we get from point A to point Z, where we are today. Because the Tanakh was codified, more or less, in the time of Ashek HaSigadol, the Men of the Great Assembly. And like I said, First, you have to get a book with the basics. You know, sometimes people ask me, uh, what book would you recommend for Jewish history? And, you know, there's no good answer to that, because there's no good book. Jewish history is a gigantic subject. But my general approach is to say, start with the most superficial stuff, and then after that, get a little more specific, uh, specific. So, you know, you get a Caesar Roth or a barrel of wine or something like that, just to give you the broad overview of who's what and when and where. And then, when you, then, after you did all that, then talk to me, and we'll say, okay, you want to get a book that will give you the Middle Ages? Here's a book that give you the Middle Ages in a broad sense. And then you can focus on a specific sense. So I can't help it. It do, usually doesn't work for all of us. I get it. But same thing with the Tanakh. They wanted to give a basic history to understand how is it that Kali Israel started out getting Israel, and by the time it's over, they blew it. That is the story of the Old Testament. By the time of Yeshua, they come into Israel, by the time the book is over, by the time you get to the end of Malachim and the Re-Yaman, all the Jews are totally gone from Eretz Yisrael. It had to happen, and I explain. The reason I'm saying all this is the books of Malachim and all that are written, as I said before, when I say uh, a superficial perspective, they talk about the kings and not the people. They talk about the military and political events primarily. They talk about religious events in the context of politics. So, for example, Here was a king who lived so-and-so. In his time, he worshipped idols. And therefore, the general theme is good king, good times, bad king, bad times. So, you know, I don't know. uh, Uzio was a a good king most of the time. And so he prospered militarily and economically. And then he went off to Derech and then things went down. You know, something like that. It works most of the time. Good king, good times, bad king, bad times. Okay? and In other words, that's the way the book is written. Uh, they don't get into the nitty-gritty, right? They don't get into the nitty-gritty. Uh, what was life like for the average individual? If you look closely and you read very closely, you know, you can pick up some hints of what life was like. Like when Elisha has a conversation with the Shunamite woman, and he says, do you want me to speak to the Sarhat Sava for you, or something like that. What you see was poverty, and this, you know, Elio and the woman from Sarva. You can do that. But generally speaking, it's written in a broad way. Now, if all we had to understand the period of the Molochim, which is a couple hundred years, was simply book of Molochim, there's a lot you wouldn't know. You'd say, for example, this king was good because he did not worship idols. That one was bad because he did worship idols. And so the entire way of judging whether times were good or bad was how firm the king was and, and the population. Which is not an accurate picture. As we know today, you can have a firm person with a big scandal. You can have from people with outrageous things going on, particularly in the area of social justice and injustice. So, what's interesting is that whoever put the books of the Tanakh together, I'm talking about Dan Shasidol in that period, they included what we call Nevi right? That's Yishar Yirmiyah Cheskel. that's the three biggies, and then Treyosar is the twelve smallies, and O'Shea is the first one in the Oser. and that's half Torah today. But it's the end of the book of Yeshayah. Now he's a, a classic example of the Treasor people, meaning these people like Yeshayah and the others. They will describe a lot of what you, what goes on below the level of the narrative in the book of Lekh, the book of Kings. And so, for example, you can say this king was good because he didn't worship idols. Oh, really? The rich stuck it to the poor. There was rampant uh, corruption in the court system. You see what I'm saying? Uh, people, uh, you know, were bad in this way and that way. There is more to Judaism than just whether or not you worship idols. You follow? Just because somebody doesn't worship idols doesn't mean it was a good time. Just like I say today, you told me this person is a or Shabbos. Okay, that's nice, and it is nice. That does not mean automatically it was a good person. Now I wish that were the case, <laughs> right? We all do. We wish, you know. As so as you tell me someone's a, 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 a from Jew, uh, I can, you know, like Rachel Lakesh. You, you can bank on it. But uh, it's not true, okay? So life is more complex than that. Now, in the case of our hero today, the Prophet Hosea, he's the beginning of something very interesting literarily, and by that I mean the following. As I said, the Book of Kings and Chronicles just zooms right through all the kings. The Book of Kings gives you primarily the kings of the north, the Malchus and the Book of Chronicles primarily the kings of the south. with a certain amount of overlap. Uh, We... Were there Navi's around? Yeah, sure there were navim around the whole time. If you go by the Gemara to Keflam, it's plenty of Navi's around. So are there any uh, recordings of the prophecies, for example, of Nathan the prophet, who's such a big figure in the reign of King David? No. Or uh, Achia Shiloni, who seems to be a big deal in the time of Shlomo Melch? No. Or, uh, you, you see what I'm saying, a lot of these navim these prophets have cameo appearances. Uh, the way it's described, this, this prophet comes and and uh, curses out this king, or criticizes him, or praises him, and then he departs. You know what I mean? Yehu Chanani, Yahziel, people that probably most people haven't even heard of, right? Yahoo and so forth. Now, for some reason, when you get to the time of Hosea, which is the middle of the period of the kings, this is the time when in the uh, in the north was more or less the time of the II, if you know what that is, and in the south time of Uziyahu that's basically the the time over there. Uh, and indeed, the Book of Hosea begins. He was there in Uzi Yehu, and Yosem, Achaz, Yichizkiah, and so forth. The reign of Yerom the second. So, what I like to call the silver age. The golden age will be King David and Solomon, David and Shlomo, right? And uh, the other one is uh, the silver age when. The two kings were militarily powerful, Uzziah in the south and Uriah in the north, but religiously it was problematic. Now, uh, I know I'm simplifying, but I can't help it. Now, uh, at that point, prophecies begin to be recorded in the biblical literature, or at least those who edited the Bible later chose to include prophecies from that point on. Sorry, I didn't interrupt that. Now, um, uh, so, really, all the neviim that we know about, Hosea, Yoel, Amos, Obadiah, Yonah, probably Micha, and Yeshayahu, they're all from the same time. For some reason, this stuff gets to be included. They're from the time when, um, if this means anything to you, Uziah, Yosem, Achaz, the middle kings of the south, the kings of Judah, and uh, the last kings of the dynasty of Yehu in the north, primarily the II, that's when these people are prophesying. They go into a much deeper picture in terms of what's happening internally than does the book of Kings of Chronicles. Hosea being a perfect example, but he, by, his by no is the only example. Okay? Now, Hosea lives in the north. So notice, he was a novi who lived in the kingdom of Israel, And uh, in our Haftorah today, he's primarily talking about the sins of the north. It's a very interesting business. And he always calls it Ephraim, because the main tribe on the north uh, was Ephraim. And the secession from the United Kingship in the time at the, right after the death of Melch was led by Yeroban ben David, who was from Ephraim. And I would say many of the kings of the north were associated with Ephraim, and uh, Shomron and all that stuff is connected with Ephraim. And so, just get used to it. Ephraim comes conflated, I would say, with um, uh, the kingdom of the north. And uh, sometimes they will refer to the king, kingdom of the north, of the ten tribes, Shomron, because that's the capital city, I repeat, one of the kings of the north, not the uh, dynasty of That's back in the time of, what's his name, Umri, uh, He built a city on a hill that belonged to a guy named Shamer, a city called Shomron, or Sumerian in Greek. And sometimes they'll say, oh, Chatar Shomron, and they mean the north is sinning. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, And you'll see that um, this kingdom was problematic from day one. But what you see in our Haftar today, and that's the reason I want to bring to your attention, is something extremely interesting. Sad, but interesting. Because at the end of the process, you know, the north is wiped out. There are no Jews that we know about left today from the north, which is amazing. Because, uh, you know, we had 12 tribes, and the Muslim disappeared rather early in our history. They seem to have been wiped out by the Assyrian Empire, and they called the 10 Lost Tribes, as I think most of my listeners know. So uh, Ephraim and Asha, Zulun, Dun, Naftali, gone, 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 right? There are some rumors that they came back, and not, but not really, okay? So here's a prophet predicting the downfall and the destruction of the North. So he lives, I would say, approximately 50 or 60 years before it happened. At the time he lived, things were relatively good in the sense that the kingship, the kingdom of the North, was uh, militarily powerful. This you can read in the Book of Kings, that Yerovan II was uh, able to conquer Syria, part of it anyway, and things like that. And in spite of what I said, he has in this Haftor today, you know, and uh, they rebelled against God. B'cherav what's the what's the language over there? And let me pull out an example. I shouldn't do it all by heart. He's going to tell you over there, Tasham Shomron ki that Shomron, which means the king of the north is guilty. They rebelled against God. B'cherav Polo, I can foresee. He's a prophet. He's a Cassandra. He sees the approaching doom. They'll fall by the sword. O'lemi Rutesha, the children will be ripped in half. Hariyoshi, the pregnant women will be ripped in half. So, in other words, disaster stands in front of you if you do not repent. And the very next verse is called Shubba. So basically, he's saying like this I see you're headed to absolute destruction unless you turn around now and repent. Of course, they didn't. Now, what are people like, like uh, uh, Hosea and almost and others? what are they talking about? they talk about um infidelity um economic and social injustice and the religious hypocrisy that's how I would generalize it and you have that in this week's partial also this week's chapter as well in the case of hosea a very prominent theme as far as i can see is uh, connected with the idolatry which uh in his opinion is uh, doubly guilty because of ingratitude, and therefore has the character of infidelity. And so you see very often in the prophecies of Hashem, including ours this week, the notion that there's a husband and a wife, and the husband is a nice guy, and he takes care of the wife, and she cheats on him anyway. And that's just simply outrageous. And the husband is Hashem, and the people are the Jewish people, and he's done many favors, as the Haftar begins today, didn't I take care of Yaakov? Right? Yaakov fled to the fields of Aram, and he worked there and I got him out of there and then I got the Jews in and out of Egypt and so on and so forth and yet in spite of all that uh, they turned around and they cheated on me. It's just the notion of infidelity. In other passages it's even more uh, vivid. Okay? So he says, Ba'novi hello, Hashem at the beginning of our Torah if you're Ashkenazic like I am. In spite of the fact that I took care of you and got you out of Egypt and all the rest you provoked me with bitter sins. Right? And so, uh, the, the ingratitude, and infidelity, very strong theme. The prophet himself was an unhappy man. He was told by God at the beginning of the book, go marry a prostitute, as a because you're doing a symbolic business. So you can just imagine a person who is a madriga of being a Navi, What's it like with him marrying zona, And he was told by God to do it, so he did it. And he had children with her, and it was supposed to be symbolic. People said, why would you do that? See, the average person who does it, you say like this, he ran right off with a flusy, okay, big deal. But if you have Rabbit Feinstein or something like that, say so why why would this happen? You see? Why would this happen? And God tells him I want people to ask that question that you should be a metaphor and a symbol and say, What I've done is run off with a prostitute. That's what you've done. Notice you've committed infidelity and uh, you know, cheating against God. And when he has children, he's not sure who the children are, by definition, who his wife is. And that's God saying, you know, you, that, that's, that's how you treat me. So he doesn't like <laughs> having to do this, but he was told to do it. And he goes and speaks at great length about this notion elsewhere of the unfaithful wife, okay, uh, with the Jewish people having that role. Now, the infidelity consists of the following it's the worship of other gods. But this is what I find fascinating, I want to share with you. Uh, it's an evolutionary process. What exactly happened with the idolatry in the kingdom of the north? Well, if you know the story from the Book of Kings, once upon a time he had a united Jewish kingdom under King David and King Solomon, and when Shlomo died, and it was from, when Shlomo died, so it broke into two parts for various reasons, taxes and whatever, and the north was led by Yerubim Ben-Nabut. Okay, I understand that, but that's half the problem, if he, if he split the unity of the Jewish people, but once he came into power, we're told, Yerom and Nebat, uh changed the Jewish religion and set up a golden calf. So notice the story, of Egil Azov reappears in Jewish history and this time the Eagle Azov is not destroyed. Okay? Is not destroyed. And uh, he set up two golden calf temples, uh, one in Basel in the south, which in the book of Hosea is always called base Oven. It's like a play on words. He won't call Beth El, the house of God, so he'll call Beth Oven house of sin. And the other one's all the way up north in Tel Dan, which could be identical, possibly, to Pesamichov. And so, he decentralized the worship and made it close for the farmers. If you live in the middle of the country, you don't have to sleep too far. You can go to Beth El. If you live in north of the country, you don't have to sleep too far. You go to Tel Dan. And uh, somehow or other, he pulled it off. Now, i make made the point on other occasions, it's pretty clear to me, that when the Nebuchadnezzar started with the golden calf, he was defining it as uh, a form of Judaism. Uh, remember, when the Bible prohibits idolatry, it doesn't necessarily mean the making of images, although you do have passages about not making images. But the essence of the Isra of Avodah Zareb is the belief in other gods. So, for example, I believe in Zeus. I believe in Thor. I believe in whatever. You know what I mean? Ching and Ping. Whatever you want to say. So it's not the Rabboni Shalom, but other deities. You get it? Not the Rabboni Shalom, but someone else. So that's the idea of Elohim Achirim. Now, I know they don't exist, Elohim Achirim, but to the idol worshiper, it does. And so, that person, you know, commits a terrible sin. The Torah says you get stoned for it and killed and that kind of business and so forth and so on. But what happens when, in contrast, the person says, I believe in God. I just want to make an image of him. So then it's not idolatry in the classic sense. It's avid zarah, they are worshipping another god. difference that that's outrageous. But you say like this, listen, I'm worshipping God. I know it says don't make an image, but not eh, a big deal. You know, it's not so bad. You say like this, in this time and age, we need an image of something to focus on. As the Rambam will tell you all the time. Anytime you think about God in any form whatsoever is a Zorah, we just can't help it when you daven in everyday Shumanesri. If you have any common whatsoever, I mean if your mind is elsewhere, it's not there again. But if you have any common whatsoever, you're going to think of something. Whatever you're thinking of is not identical with what God is because any idea you have was created by God, it cannot be God. Now, uh, that being the case, it's pretty clear to me that Rampandabat was able to sell this golden calf business as simply a statue of Hashem, in some form or another. Now, what's so bad about that? First of all, it is awesome. But I said, what's so bad about that? It leads to what does it lead to? Is evolutionary process. Um, you start with this and you move to that. You start with marijuana, you end up with the heroin and the LSD. You see. And so the classic passage is in our Haftorah today. In the beginning, the worship of the golden calf involved bringing in carbonas and probably prayers and who knows what you know, they tried to imitate the temple in Jerusalem. That's pretty clear what Yerubim was trying to do. He did it for political, cynical reasons, but like I said, he was able to push it over. He says it's an image of God. This is a whole long discussion. I'm just giving you a short version. The 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 temple in Tel Dan, if it's identical, but to Pesel Micha, if you read the story of the image set up by Micha back in the Book of Judges, you'll see clearly that it was by misguided Jews who were making an image of what they thought is a good thing, an image of Hashem. But First of all, soft core leads to hard core. and so by the time you get a little bit later, after you rub them, you get to, um, because what happened was there was no political stability in the North. How could there be? They had, they, they weren't the, the House of David, so the public didn't feel loyalty to them. So all these kings came along, and either they or their children were wiped out by successors in coup d'etat in the Middle Eastern style, where you kill everybody, the men, the women, the children, and all that sort of thing. And so, um, Yerovim died in bed, but his son was murdered by his general, Bashav. That guy died in bed, but his son was murdered by his general. That general who murdered the fourth king was Zimri, and he was killed, he was burned alive in the house by the general who came after him, which was Omri. Omri set it up for a couple generations, the dynasty of Omri and Ahav. Uh, oh, when you get to Omri and Achav, they upped the ante, and they moved it to Baal and Asherah, so in other words, it's not an idol of Hashem. It's already another god. You see? And it says those words that to Achav, who was the son of Omri, it was insufficient to follow Yoram ben Devad, Because there you still believe in one god. Uh, now they moved to Baal and Asherah, which were foreign gods brought in by Jezebel and so on and so forth. Now, the worship of the Baal, which was a foreign deity, and Avodah of Zorah, was exterminated a few kings later when the house when the dynasty of Armory was wiped out by Yehu. I hope I'm not confusing you. This is the Old Testament 101. The Christians know this stuff like the back of their hand. Yehu exterminated the, the worship of the Baal, through so a certain trick, but he kept the worship of Hashem, the golden calf. And uh, so you might say, like oh, guess, what's so bad? Idol, l- l- this raises the question in general. Why is the Torah so hyper on idols? Let's put it this way. A guy believes in idols. Say he's an idiot. I got news for you. People believe in all kinds of Shagas. You understand? Being an idiot doesn't mean that you hide Misa, and in the Torah you get stoned, that's the worst of all of eras. <clears throat> Listen, and the other, the gemara in, in the first parakel in the Rosh Hashanah, you know, it's all terrible stuff. Now, what, what's so bad? It's just misguided, you see? Well, uh, I'm going to give you the rational explanation of that. By the time you develop a religion based on these idols, even if you say it's an idol for God, since it's prohibited by the Torah you can't follow the Torah's guidelines you're going to have a different type of priesthood you're going to have a different type of temple and it's in the nature of religion, the religion is a corrupting influence, you hear what I said? Religion as an institution is a corrupting thing, the priesthood by definition is always going to be looking for power and money, That's just how it goes, that's uh, how it goes the Torah sort of tries to uh, you know Legislate against that, in, in many ways, keep the priests against, away from the dead and whatever, things like that. but not the priesthood of yourban Devok. And by the time you get uh, 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 to the time of Hoshea, and knows you get hundred, 200 years into it, the worship of the golden calf, which was originally supposed to be a Jewish thing, has degenerated itself into Zophre Odommaholemy Shakun, which you have in this week's parsha, which means that they already developed uh, uh, a uh, religious principle, whoever sheks his kid, a gets to kiss the golden calf. In other words, the golden calf is no longer simply a symbol of God in heaven, but became an object of, a, a, of worship itself. Because that's what idols become. It's like a psychological thing. When you see something that's holy, eventually you sort of worship it. Unless you're very, very careful and, and it's almost impossible. Uh... And so once you worship it, then all kind of superstitions pop up in connection with it. <laughs> I think I told you this. I, uh, many years ago, I did a trip. Once we left, we, we took people to uh, Spain. And uh, it was a good trip. And one of the places we went to was Córdoba, where the Rambam was born. And the Spanish today, for tourism purposes, because they redone the city of Córdoba, they take you to the place the tour guide where the Jewish quarter used to be, no longer is. And in a certain little square, there's a statue of Maimonides. You know, obviously imaginary statue. Now, <laughs> it's kind of funny. The Rambam is the last guy that wants the statue, if you know who the Rambam was. But okay, it's glam. Okay, you know, in other words, in their way, they mean well. Shun. And uh, the guy who took us there was trying to be a tour guide thing. You know, I am the natural enemy of the tour guides. But... You know, he's trying to do his thing, and so, uh, this is Maimonides the 13 principles, blah blah blah. But it's like a bronze statue, and the, he, they have Maimonides sitting on a chair, and he's got two slippers on his feet. This bronze statue, and I noticed the slippers were particularly shiny, and I said, Why is this slipper shiny? And he said, Well, it's a, it's a superstitious custom among the Goyim in Cordoba to today. When you get engaged, if you want good luck, go rub the shoes of Maimonides. Who knows where they came with this mishigas? But that's exactly what the Rambam means when he says idolatry over the course of time inevitably degenerates into superstition. It's not just a belief in something else, but it's going to become a superstition. You understand? And in our case, shakum, the golden calf turned into an object of, Ooh, ah, ah if you if, if, allow you to get 10 feet away, it costs you $100. Allow you get uh, five feet away, cost ten thousand dollars. Allow you get a foot away, cost fifty thousand dollars. You know that kind of shtick. And if you want to get to kiss the calf, which is like the closest contact you can have, uh, you got to shech somebody, shech the kid, human sacrifice. So, meaning idolatry degenerates. Uh, It degenerates as it has to, because all religion is going to degenerate. I'll repeat again: all religion is going to degenerate. The Torah is so organized that they try to legislate against it. But we've had times in Jewish history where the uh, religion degenerated. One is the temple in the first period, in the first temple and the, the second half of the temple. People like uh, the prophets are the ones who call attention to it. Just read the book of Ezekiel to find about the terrible degeneration that the temple in Jerusalem had undergone, which led to its destruction. And the Baishenie, I think many of you are aware that the priesthood became totally corrupted. So then in Yuma, you know, you have to swear that you're not going to change the ritual. And they were buying and selling. It's kind of like the nature of these sorts of things, especially anything connected with a cult. cult, I mean, in the the, uh, academic sense, Uh, a ritual around the temple. So uh, Hosea, therefore, is saying that you know this uh, uh, kingdom of the north started. However, they started with a golden calf. But by now, it's become horrible. As bad as it was in the beginning, it's come much worse. Tasham Shomron, and it's surrounded with all kind of terrible things over here. Uh, the language he uses, like I say before, is pretty heavy um, in our parsha. Let me see over here. Is it in our thing? But uh, the language is yeah. Svavuni Bakaka Shaphraim of Mirba Basis Right? <laughs> the Ephraim, meaning the north, has uh, surrounded me with falsehood and with deceit. Uh, unlike the south, he says, Judah governs with God. <laughs> you see? So, uh, he hates the religious situation at the time he lives in, but he cannot stop it. You see? And all he can do is, is predict doom. Right? Now, why is this all included... In the Torah, uh, why do we read it? The reason you read it in Parsha VaYetzeh is only because of the connection where it says Yaakov uh you know, stay, stay, Aram, whatever, to recall the story of Jacob and uh, Lovan, you know, and to point out that uh, Yaakov survived, as we know from Parsha VaYetzeh, only because of the special divine providence. He would have eaten alive by Lavan. He would have been torn to bits by that gangster. And uh, divine providence saved him. Lovin says those very words, does he not? Where he says, I could have killed you, but your God came to me and then I uh, warded me off. So basically, he's saying, If not for divine providence, I would have killed you and killed my own children and grandchildren also. I mean, that's that's who Lovin was, like I mentioned yesterday. Uh, so, on the one hand, you have the uh, the providential uh, conduct of the Almighty towards the Jewish people, and then you have on the other hand, the Jews are making idols right and left, and increasing uh, uh, degeneracy. And the idolatry has moved already, not simply from the point of, of bowing down to a statue, but of human sacrifice. Because that is what happened. Okay? Now, so this is typical of the ancient Canaanite religions. You had all these sex things and all these human sacrifice things. There's a, uh, what do you call it, an obsession with fertility, which uh, turned society into terrible ways. And he goes on and says, you know, you have merchants with deceitful weights. Uh, there's no honesty in business. Uh, the government was completely corrupt. And uh, the result is that you're doomed. right? You're doomed. And uh, God is keep tearing his hair out. The prophet is speaking on behalf of God. He said, it's not what I wanted. It's not the way things are supposed to turn out. But nobody's listening to me. And if nobody listens to me and turns around, if you don't do the Shuba Yisrael, Hashem Elkechol, then you're all doomed. Now we read and Shabbat Shuvah is, you know, the, the small passage from the very end of uh, the book of Ashe'ah, in which he says, if you would only repent, it, it, it doesn't even hurt. You know, repentance is, is, doesn't involve necessarily anything physical. I'm not calling upon you, God says, you know, to, to uh, flagellate yourself, to torment yourself. He's not calling for penance. He's calling for repentance. Repentance should be, you know, pain-free, physical pain-free, which is a big theme of Hosea, but it doesn't happen. It does not happen. So I leave you with the uh, image of a typical prophet who is um, trying to call out uh, social injustice, although you don't see the theme of social injustice so much in this week's uh, haftarah, We will in the future. Uh, You do see the theme of idolatry perceived as God as as horrible infidelity and ingratitude, uh, which you do see in life, by the way. I mean, I'm sorry to say it. All infidelity is bad, (laughs) right? But uh, it's particularly disgusting when, you know, the guy was good to the wife and she cheats on him, or vice versa. She was a good wife and he cheats on her. So there's zero gratitude. There's a gene missing, you know what I mean? There's there's something missing in the the moral fiber, in the moral makeup. And this is what the uh, prophet calls attention to. And so it turns out that whoever takes the trouble this week to read the uh, Haftorah, particularly if you know the historical context in which I just tried to lay out a little bit at least, uh, it's a mustard schmooze. You know what I'm saying? It's a mustard tale. Because uh, it's, uh, how should I say, it's reflecting uh, the divine um, sadness as well as anger with a situation in which God says like this, I show special providence for you, but you don't show anything for me. Okay. And on that note, uh, which is a sober note, I uh, conclude and wish everybody a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.